Hello, people. Christianity offers the greatest, most glorious, most hope-filling, suffering-enduring, love-saturated promises in the universe. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, how you've failed God. In Jesus, there is a refuge from judgment. By the Spirit, we know this God as Abba, Father. And there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Not loss, not hardship, not bad health, not even our own death. There's just a few of the amazing promises that Christianity offers, and in particular from Romans chapter 8, the chapter just before the one we have read, a chapter that many of us cling to, have memorised those promises because they are so dear. They get us through, they point us ahead, they give us joy, but there's a problem that threatens those promises to you as a follower of Jesus. And it's not a problem that we often think about, but it was one that was very obvious in the first century for Paul that he needs to deal with. It's the problem of Israel. See, all the way back at the start of the Old Testament, God makes promises to the nation of Israel that they will be his people, he will be their God that he will bring blessing, that he will bring salvation through the descendants of Israel. But in Paul's day in the first century, and still to our own, the large majority of Jews rejected Jesus as God's Messiah and so are eternally cut off from God in hell. Well, hang on, Paul. It seems like God hasn't been faithful to his promises to the people of the Old Testament. How can we be confident that he'll keep his promises to us, people of the New Testament? If God wasn't faithful to the Jews, Christians can't assume that he will be. This raises, therefore, an issue that goes to our confidence and comfort in God. And Paul sets out to resolve this problem by giving us one of the biggest, most glorious visions of God in the Bible. And he does this over the next bunch of chapters, 9, 10, and 11. However, this view of God is one of the most confronting views we come up against. And it can be for a few reasons. Maybe it's very different to your upbringing to what you were taught, what you were raised to think about God. And you might hear some things this morning going, what? This is not the God I know. Or similar, this is not the God that I would like to think is God. That's not how I like to think about God. One reason this is challenging for all of us is that this part of the Bible, this teaching of the Bible, in fact, the Bible is a head-on collision to the self-absorbed, self-determining culture that we live in, the air that we breathe. But this can also be a really tricky part of the Bible because it's deeply personal. It taps into strong emotions, either towards God or for other people as these things spin out. We'll know this, if this is you, it was the same for Paul. 
We just read it there. He begins this section with great heartache and sorrow for his brothers and sisters of Israel. But he'll also finish the section, chapter 11, with soaring praise to God. It's okay and even good that these truths connect with our emotions. Just see if you can tease it down, what what is giving rise to that emotion. Let me suggest, therefore, how to go about listening this morning. Firstly, most importantly, along with your eyes. Listen with your eyes. That is, if you take objection to the things that you're hearing, make sure it's with the text that you see in front of you, which is why Kathy was right to say, flog a Bible. Make sure you've got it in front of you. Or at least take objection to the way that I'm handling the text. Listen humbly. Allow God to teach you, to be gracious with you. Listen patiently. Some of you will hear things or have heard things this week that you're wrestling with. You're like, I I just can't get it. I'm not there. And God is patient. Don't hear anything today that would let you just go, that's it. I'm throwing the whole thing out. Take time. You might take weeks, months, years to come to an understanding of these truths. And in fact, in a few weeks' time, we're going to run a series called Digging Deeper where we'll take three weeks to further tease out some of the issues I won't have time for this morning. But lastly, importantly, listen prayerfully. Even if it's the help, help, help prayer. The very simple prayer to God. So how about I do that for us and then we'll dive right in. Lord God, we do thank you for this word that you have had written. That you have had say exactly what you intended to say because it reveals the truth about you, about us about the biggest realities in the world. And so we ask, please, that you, by your spirit, might be our teacher now and that you might guide us into the truth, that we might know the joy and the freedom that Jesus offers comes with the truth, that your name might be honoured. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's move through chapter 9, number three sections, movements. Firstly, Paul deals with this issue. Has God's word failed? to Israel. Verse 6, no. It's not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Again, way back in the Old Testament, towards the start, God makes a promise to Abraham. One man that through him, through his descendants, he will bring blessing to the whole world. thing is, Abraham is 75 years old at the time. His wife Sarah is 65 and barren. They don't have any kids. So how is God going to bring blessing to the whole world through to descendants with no kids? Well, the months and years roll on, no kids, and so they decide to take things into their own hands. Abraham sleeps with one of Sarah's servants, and they use her womb to bring a child into the family, thinking, all right, now the blessing can come. His name is Ishmael. But God goes, no, 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 that's not the child that I'm going to bring blessing through. 
so that when Abraham is 100 years old, Sarah is 90, she falls pregnant, miraculously. And Isaac is born. He is the child of the promise, not Ishmael. A child of the promise is someone God's word gives life to. God calls into being the things that were not. And so his answer is, no, no, no. God's promise to Israel hasn't failed because not all of Israel are children of the promise. He goes on, verse 10, to give another example from the second generation. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Twins are now conceived in the womb of Isaac's wife. At the same moment, same conception, yet they experience radically different experiences of God, treatment from him. Because God loved Jacob, God hated Esau. Now, the use of hate there isn't how we typically think of hate, speak of hate, use hate. I found myself Friday night saying to my kids, I hate the Melbourne Storm. The football team, here they go again, winning. The hate here isn't this kind of bitter, small-minded, nasty, vindictive, yobbo, sinful kind of hate. But... It would be wrong to say, no, 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 just God loved Esau a little less than Jacob. No, no, God loved Jacob, hated Esau, which means God chose to set his affection on Jacob to bring the blessing of salvation to him. He didn't do this for Esau. Now, why Jacob? Why choose Jacob and not Esau? Same womb. Same conception. Well, let's rule out some reasons that can be commonly offered as wrong reasons before underlying the one that is given. It's not Jacob because of his worthiness. As though God looked into the future to see what kind of boys, men they would grow up to be and saw that Jacob will be the more upright, worthy one and so I'll elect him, not Esau. In fact, if God were to have done that, he would have seen that Jacob would grow up as cunning, deceitful, a weasel. If you're a Harry Potter fan, he'd belong to the house of Slytherin. He's not choosing Jacob because of his worthiness compared to Esau. That's the point of verse 11. Before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, God chose Jacob. So God's choice of Jacob is not grounded in Jacob's worthiness. Secondly, it's not grounded in Jacob's free will or Esau's free will. That is, if we understand God looking down the tunnel of time and seeing which people would freely choose to follow him, to trust him, and who would freely choose to reject him. And so, in order to preserve this human autonomy and freedom, he elects that person as his own. No, no, no. 
God's sovereignty is not us giving him permission to do as he sovereignly pleases. That's what it boils down to, if that's how you think of this. Ultimately, it is the human who is in control of eternity. It's not grounded in Jacob or Esau's free will. Neither is it grounded in Jacob's faith. See, notice what verse 12 doesn't say. It says there, um, not by works, but we expect to say faith, don't we? You read the New Testament, you read a lot of Paul, you see this contrast over and over. Not by works, that is, someone who thinks they're good enough to work their way to God, who realises I'll never be good enough, and so I'll throw myself on the mercy of God by faith. It's not what he says. That's how justification occurs, not election. What is works contrasted with? Him who calls. What is the decisive reason the text gives for why Jacob is chosen and Esau is not? God. God's free choice. Completely apart from any human condition or constraint. Which is why what we're dealing with here is called God's unconditional election. Why are you a Christian? Why are you loved by God? Why are you a child of God? Well, I might answer that question by saying, well, because I was born into a Christian home. I had Christian parents from the day dot teach me the gospel, take me to church, where Sunday school teachers taught me the things of Jesus, prayed for me. I might say, because I chose to trust in the gospel and continue to trust in the gospel, that's why I'm a Christian. All of that would be true and biblical. But what is the decisive reason I'm a Christian that you are? God. God chose you to be a child of his promise. Before you were born, before you'd done anything good or bad, before the creation of the world, God freely chose to set his affection on you in a way that would bring the blessing of salvation. This is Paul's reason for why God's promise to Israel hasn't failed. Because God's people, those who truly belong to him, it's never been about birthright, physical descent, but by God's sovereign election. Therefore, it's always been about grace, not race, to be ethnic Israel. Therefore, God's word hasn't failed to them because those whom are elect, he is faithful to. That's the first part of this movement. But then, hot on the heels, Paul brings a question or an objection that no doubt he heard a lot, no doubt we ask, which is this. Well, hang on. Is God just in choosing Jacob and not Esau? Verse 14, what then shall we say, is God unjust? Not at all. It's very strong language. For, now here comes the because, the reason. Here's why God is not unjust in the way that he elects. And just a warning, it's probably not the defense of God that you're wanting. 
at first sight anyway. It's probably not the defence that you or I would write for God that would sit well with our Christian, non-Christian friends. And here's the important thing about that, actually. I have wrestled with these truths, with this particular verse over the many years following Jesus now. I have really struggled to understand how this is just and how Paul's reason displays that. But here's the key thing. The Bible defends God according to his own standard of justice, not any human standard. At least not any human-centred standard. And so if I find myself going, no, 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 this is not what I would say if I were to defend a God who's just, there's the point. God measures himself against his own standards. And I'll give you a summary of the defence, two parts. God's election is not unjust because, number one, it displays the character of God. And number two, it serves the purposes of God. God, in electing some to salvation, is not unjust because it displays the character of God. It serves the purposes of God. Let's look at the character piece first. Verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. This is a quote from Exodus. It's worth coming back to getting some context. Come back to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, the context is the people of Israel are enslaved by Pharaoh in Egypt. They're crying out to God. God hears them. And he's going to use Moses as part of his deliverance of them. Chapter 3 is the first time that Moses encounters God. God, uh, verse 13, has sent him. And Moses says, well, what if people ask your name? Who should I say has sent me? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent you. Moses says, what's your name, God? And God says, I am who I am. I was talking to my kid about this the other day and his head just starts exploding. I, but, but, exactly. God's name, God's essence is not defined, dependent upon anything or anyone in creation. He is who he is. He is free. The godness of God is his freedom as God. Not bound or constrained or battling with, he's God. Now, his name here is Yahweh, which in our translation gets uh, translated the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. Bound up in the name of God is his freedom. I am who I am. Fast forward to chapter 33. We had that read come back to us, back to it, chapter 33. Now, Moses asks God a staggering thing. Wow. Because he says there... Um, verse 18, chapter 33. Now show me your glory, Lord. Show me your glory. And the Lord said, all right, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. Now, if you're Moses, 
And you've just had the boldness to say to God, show me your glory. And he says, okay, you ready? What are you thinking God is about to show you to display his glory? Is he going to transport you back to before the creation of all things to show you the power of God creating all things? Is he going to roll out a slideshow of the best ever sunsets, the ones where your jaw just hits the floor? No. Moses is going to see the Lord's glory by listening. Listening to the words of God because I will proclaim my name, the Lord, Yahweh, I am who I am in your presence. That's how God will reveal his glory. He then unpacks that some more. Here's our quote from Romans, by saying, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. What is the most glorious thing God can show Moses, us, anyone? Is freedom. Because his freedom is his godness. It's what makes God, God. And here's the thing, in that freedom, he freely chooses to extend mercy to whoever he likes. Now notice this, as he extends mercy, he's extending that to those who are not just undeserving, but ill-deserving, because you just flick back a page, chapter 32, just look at the heading, it says, the golden calf. God has rescued his people out of of Egypt to worship him. And yet, in a moment, they have prostituted themselves by turning from Yahweh to worship this golden calf. Uh, They deserve to be wiped out immediately. Yet God, in his freedom, will have mercy on whomever he wants. Now, here's how it displays the character of God It is the character of God to be merciful. God in himself, bound up in who he is, he is merciful. That is, the Bible will describe or says, God is love. It doesn't say God is wrath. Now, God's love is so much bigger than we tend to appreciate, but God is love doesn't say God is wrath. There is something inherent about God, about his mercy. And so he is free to show mercy, to reveal himself to whoever he pleases, which is different, and we'll come to this in a moment, in how he brings judgment. Why does this help us see the justness of God? Because he's acting in accordance with who he is, his own standards. If he weren't to, he would be unjust, he would be untrustworthy, but he does, he's free, he shows mercy to whoever he wants. Come back to Romans 9. There's the first reason Paul gives why God's election of some and not others is just. He's acting in accordance with his character. The second reason he gives is that it serves his purpose. You see that in verse 17. For Scripture says to Pharaoh... I raised you up for this very purpose, 
that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Another quote from Exodus, this time dealing with the ruler of Egypt, the oppressor of the Israelites, but this time to make the opposite point about God choosing to harden some. Now, let me deal with the purposes given here rather briefly before coming to an important qualification. The first reason given for why God hardens Pharaoh is that his power might be displayed, that is, the power of God. If you've read the account, you know it takes 10 plagues that increase in severity before Pharaoh lets God's people go. And so this long, drawn-out ordeal where it seems like, man, Pharaoh might have it over God here. No. God shows his power in judgment, but also in redemption. He parts the Red Sea that the Israelites might walk through on dry ground. Because God hardened Pharaoh's heart, His power was demonstrated in judgment and salvation. But the second purpose there is not just power, but proclamation. I raised you up for this very purpose, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And here we are in Erina, 2021, talking about this God. Talking about Yahweh, who has revealed himself in Jesus. This takes us to the centre and heart of God's ultimate purposes. For all the purposes he has, what is the greatest? It is to magnify himself. To exalt his name, his fame to all creation. We hear this and go, oh man, who does he think he is? God or something. This is not the Aussie's purpose for God, is it? The Aussie's purpose for God is to give us good health, give us a good job, give us a nice family, stick us in a nice part of the luckiest country in the world and leave us the heck alone so that we can get on with ourselves at the centre of the universe, with our family at the centre, with our purposes. This is a head-on collision with the Aussie's purpose for God. His purpose? He will not have his name dragged through the mud. He will not have his fame sidelined. And so that even in the hardening of hearts, as God chooses to harden, that is good, that is just, because it brings about the greatest good, which is the glorifying of God. The greatest good. Now, an important qualification. Because if you read the Pharaoh account closely, you'll notice that sometimes... Pharaoh's heart is hardened because God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God did it. Six times we read. But other times we read three times, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Well, who did it? Did God harden Pharaoh's heart or did Pharaoh harden Pharaoh's heart? Yes. What we can't say is that, first of all, Pharaoh decided to harden his heart towards God 
God saw that, wanted to respect his freedom, and so only further hardened an already hard heart. Can't do that. The account doesn't do that. It just mixes up the order. What we can and must say is this. God doesn't harden Pharaoh's soft heart. There is no one in human history that has come soft-hearted to God only to be hardened by him so that he might display his power and make his name famous. Not one ever. No one who would throw themselves on the mercy of God will hear from him, sorry, you're not one of my elect. Bad luck. Which means this. Whilst God chooses to harden some people to serve his good purposes, our responsibility is never diminished. Pharaoh is held accountable for his choices. This is not God as some puppeteer pulling strings on a bunch of, you know, just puppets on earth. Pharaoh, we, you, I, make real moral choices... And so are rightly held responsible for them. Now, there is one clarification that we must make. God is not the author of sin. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. He works it for good purposes. But God is not the author of sin that would see a human reject God and commit that sin. God stands behind his work of hardening differently to the way that he stands behind his work of extending mercy. He's behind both. He's ultimately responsible for both, but he stands behind them differently, but given the nature of who he is. Let me see if this illustration helps. It confused someone earlier, but I'll give it another go. Imagine the sun, you know, that big ball up in our sky, said to itself one day, you know what? I've had enough of this galaxy. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of just going around and around planet Earth, or so they think, (laughs) those arrogant humans. I'm done. I'm out of here. I'm going to another galaxy. If the sun did that, what would that mean for our planet? Darkness, death. Is the sun causing the darkness which brings death? Is the sun in our galaxy emitting darkness? No. The sun radiates heat, which causes light. The sun doesn't radiate darkness. But is the sun responsible for our darkness? Yes. If it hadn't chosen to chuff off to another galaxy, the sun would still be here, we'd still have light. Do you see what I'm saying? The sun doesn't emit darkness, radiate darkness. It emits light, radiates light. But by choosing... The point in the illustration is that darkness and light are not equal but opposite things. They're connected to the actions of the sun, but differently, it's the same with God. His work of showing mercy, he stands behind differently as he does his work of hardening because of that earlier point, because of his character. He is merciful. 
It's an extension of who he is. More. It's given to those who are undeserving. Mercy. God hardens those who deserve it. What? God doesn't work against our will. God doesn't work against our will. He shapes our will to achieve his own. But how can that work? How can someone, you know, how can God be completely in control and sovereign and I be completely responsible? Because when it comes to a decision to be made, either you make it, and I'm not held responsible, you are, or I make it. And I'm held responsible, not you. That's the way it works with human relationships. How can God harden hearts to be responsible, but people harden their own hearts also responsible? How can these both be true? Because of the reason given in the third movement of this passage. I think one of the biggest reasons we struggle to accept this part of the Bible, these kinds of teachings in the Bible, is that often we think of God as just a bigger, better version of ourselves. You know, me on my best day, when I've had enough sleep, when I've got exercise, when the sun is shining, when I've been good to my kids and my wife, God's like that just maybe a hundred times better, even a thousand, whatever. And if we do that, we think, well, hang on, I can't act upon your will whilst leaving your responsibility intact. I can't act upon your will whilst leaving you responsible. Because I can't do that, therefore God can't do that. Wrong. That's the point being made, verse 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? Paul at this point is kind of done with the kind of arguments that we might want him to give, although we probably haven't wanted what he's given us already. What does he do instead? He gives us the non-answer answer. Why will God blame us? Who can resist him? Verse 20, But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay pottery for special purposes and some for common use? A more modern illustration, maybe it's happening in your house at the moment, Lego. Genius marketing, that show. There's lots of Lego making going on in my house at the moment. Does not my kid have the right to make out of the same bunch of bricks a desert as she does a beautiful flower. Of course she does. She's the creator. Now, don't push Paul or my illustrations too far here. The Bible isn't saying that we are inanimate pieces of plastic. No, no, the point that it's making is God exists in a completely different category to us. That is, creator. We're a creature. He is who he is. He is free in a way that we are not. And so Paul's final response as we wrestle with these issues is 
to put us in our place. And here's the thing, it is the most loving thing he can do. What a horrific thing for us to misplace that category, to actually think God is made in the image of us. To to let someone continue in that way of thinking, knowingly, permissively, is surely one of the most harmful things you could do for a person. If you know that, hang on, it is God who's creator. You are not. Know your place. Now, Paul's not saying that we should never ask questions of God. Not even saying that we shouldn't cry out in anguish to God. Jesus does. But he's rebuking the hostile spirit toward God that says, how dare you run the world the way that you do? How dare you harden Pharaoh's heart? He never stood a chance. You were wrong. That is the spirit that this part of the Bible comes down to crush. But in crushing it, it extends grace to us. Why? Because God shows grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. We go, oh, I don't like this picture of God. I wouldn't put it like this way, Paul. It's the truth about who God is. It is the most loving thing God could do for us to tell us plainly how things are, where we fit, and so to humble us. That's the proper spirit. As we come to this part of the Bible, as we approach God, humility. God is free because God is God. The key issue is, is God good? Will he use his freedom for good or harm? That's the key question for us. And the God who is free is the God of the cross. The God who knew the lengths that he would go to. The horror that would come upon his only son, his relationship with him. So that he might extend mercy to the ill-deserving, that he might bring into being children of the promise. Here's the thing. The God who is free, the God who is sovereign, is the God of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can know that he's good. And as you come to put your trust in him, throw your mercy on God through Jesus, you show yourself to be one that God has elected has marked out for his blessing of salvation. Let me finish. This raises all sorts of questions for us. Someone came up to me after 8.30 said, I've got more questions, I'm more confused than what I was before you started. I took that as a compliment. (laughs) You think you can work God out in 40 minutes? Now, I trust he's given us a clearer picture of God, but it raises all sorts of things. I think... A key thing that we go wrong with as we hear this teaching is you go, well, hang on. If God is sovereign, he'll do whatever he likes, doesn't matter what I do or don't do. Fatalism. No. And here's the biblical answer for it, though I don't have time to take you through it. Whilst God sovereignly ordains the ends, 
he sovereignly also ordains the means he uses to the end. And those means include our real decisions, our will. So why bother evangelise or pray for someone if God's already chosen who he'll save? Well, next chapter, Paul talks about his heart for evangelism. In fact, we could go as far as saying, if we don't share the gospel of Jesus, people won't be saved. But hang on, God will just save his elect. Yes, but he's ordained the means to save, which is the preaching of the word of Jesus. Why bother praying? God will choose who he wants. God uses prayer to achieve his ends. If you don't pray, those ends won't be achieved. What about our kids? I've been talking to a few people who have gone, oh, I'm terrified that my kids aren't chosen. Either young kids or kids who have grown up and who have walked from the faith. Romans 9 serves as the motivation to keep speaking, keep loving, keep praying for your children. Because God sovereignly works in the lives of people. If it was just down to free will... Then all you could say is, God, create a bunch of circumstances that might point my kids. That's not how we pray. God, save them. Keep saving them. Will we, together as a church, believe that our kids' ministry is a means that God has ordained to use to see them one to the end of salvation? Do we believe that? Will we give ourselves to raising another generation? But finally, the thing, big thing this leaves us with, I've just written in my notes, be humble, be thankful, be comforted. Be humble. God is God. He is massive. I am puny. Know my place. Be humble as a follower of Jesus, as one who knows the promises of God. It's nothing about you. You're not more worthy. God chose to set his affection on you. There is no place for arrogance. Be humble, therefore be thankful. God, me? Really, me? Thank you. Be comforted. You belong to the sovereign God of the universe. Nothing stops his purposes. He is faithful to his promises. You can trust that nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And if you are sitting here this morning going, I'm actually terrified whether I'm chosen or not. What's the answer to that? It's, it's to not think about that at all. It's to think about, have I put my trust in God's Saviour, Jesus? Throw myself on his mercy. And have I woken up today to cling to that mercy afresh? Will I wake up tomorrow to do it? That's what you've got to worry about. And if you've done that, those wonderful promises, they're yours. You can bank on them. Next week, it's Mother's Day. Often a good opportunity to bring people to church who wouldn't otherwise come. You might hear this go, ooh, maybe not. <laughs> well, trust God anyway. Next week, chapter 10, Paul flips. He comes at things from a different angle. He'll talk about people's need for the gospel, what it is, how to get it. Great opportunity to bring people to come and hear about what they really need to do. Trust that it might be the means that God uses to bring blessing to someone's life.
Let me pray. Father God, forgive us for our small view of you, our wrong thinking of you. Forgive us for our pride. So much of our grief actually stems from our self-determining, self-centeredness. Forgive us. And we are in awe at you, at who you are. Full stop. But in awe of you that we might be your children, that you have shown mercy to. Please continue that mercy among us to our kids, to the next generation. Bring those who have walked away back. Extend that mercy to the coast that more and more people might show themselves to be yours. And give us, please, faith, a deep confidence that you are a God who is good, who is trustworthy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.